Hey everybody, welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. I'm your host, Chris Cosentino. We are here to talk about people that inspire and all my guests are inspiring in so many different ways. And I'm really looking forward to digging deep into how they got to where they are, to the top of their game, how hard they've worked, how much they've given up and how they're giving back. So without further ado, here's our next guest. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Losing Your Mind with Chris Cosentino. Boy, I wet the bed on that intro. Um, I am here. <laughs> and we can't edit. So there you go. Um, I'm here with my friend Dylan. Dylan, help me pronounce your last name. Is Oslinger? Oslinger. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm the worst at pronouncing, pronouncing names as I can't, most people can't pronounce mine. So I, I want to make sure. And I, of course I screwed up anyways. So one of the things I'm super excited about, uh, Dylan and I know each other through mountain biking, but Dylan's also an avid tele skier. But the thing that really, really, I think connected both of us was the conversation over the ecosystem around food, soil, snow, and how we as outdoor recreationists impact the environment that we love so much, whether it's a mountain bike trail, whether it's the wax you choose to use on your skis, and if it's gonna leave imprint on the mountain after the season's over, Dylan has these answers. And it's been a lot to learn for me. And I just keep going back and pestering him. And I'm hoping I'm not, but I'm learning a lot along the way. And I'm hoping that Dylan can share a lot more of this with you guys uh, as our conversation moves forward. So Dylan, I think you're frozen. Nope, you're not anymore. No, I'm, I'm here. No, I, that's a lot. I hope I, I should have brought more notes, more <laughs> answers for you, but it's, it's all right. <laughs> so first off, you are, you are from Truckee, right? Yes, sir. And, uh, you know, we met ripping, well, you ripped past me like I was standing still at Downeyville. Let's just be crystal clear on that. Um, but, you know, you've really been focusing a lot on how, you know, not only the public and outdoor recreation affects our environment, but also you were talking, we talked a lot of during the pandemic about soil and erosion and the destruction of soil due to cattle rearing or industrial farming. And I, let, let's kind of, there's a lot of pieces of the puzzle. And I want to start with how you got interested in this subject in particular, because it's not something that you normally hear from an avid outdoorist other than we want to end climate change. Yeah. No, I mean, and something to clear up, like you're not afraid to cook downhill. Like I have, I have seen you moving downhill at Downeyville and uh, you know, that's, that's quick times um, and it's good. I think that there's a lot to, to connect on because it's not all like, it's not often the fast guys and the fast gals who want to, you know, sit down afterwards and talk about soil and their bar company, um, you know, and like where the ingredients come from. That's pretty rare. So no, I've just been fortunate to have the right, people around me to want to, to want to connect on, on the things that are close to heart. Um, yeah, you know, like right off the bat, you kind of hit it with soil. I think that's probably the thing that ties me to a lot of it. And it's funny, Downeyville really is like, you know, that was my youth. That was my young days was being on those same trails, learning from Greg Williams and putting my hands in the earth. But, you know, if you, if you ride away from that, racing venue you're pretty quickly in agricultural land right like you're in the sierra valley i mean you're looking at dairy and ranching pigs sheep it's all old like european immigrants um and, and that's just like dylan not to interrupt but can you please tell everybody who greg is and what he does yeah and greg williams is the executive director for the sierra buttes trail stewardship you know like that's Greg was born up in between Northern California and, and Southern Oregon, you know, to like to a dying indigenous tribe and brought kind of that land stewardship culture to Downeyville and created probably the preeminent mountain biking destination in the West Coast. They're yes. not small things, right? Like how, how do you describe that man? Uh, uh, I think that's it in a sentence, but he's, he's a big figure to fill shoes, you know, and um, a lot to learn from in in young days uh, to look up to and, and still look up to and he does it with a smile and a laugh and, and isn't always at the front of, of a microphone or you know in magazine articles um yeah so i think i just grew up in that culture of 
of agriculture and ranching and respecting, you know, people who, who use their hands for work. Um, and I followed that for a while, you know, making money, helping out on ranches. Um, I was ski guiding a lot. Can't say I was that great at school in the younger years. Like I was focused on being a professional athlete, um, which was great for a time, you know, like I, I got to race around the world on a mountain bike and I still do. Um, I ski, you know, North and South America and, and do the whole telemark thing, um, ski guiding and just as a professional athlete. And that's a dream. But at a certain point, um, you know, there's just like, there's more to see beyond just going to the same places and the same races again and again. Um, so I got my undergrad degrees in Bozeman in Montana, simply because I like skiing. Uh, could, bad place to do it. Oh my God. Talk about yeah. like, you needed a snorkel. I'm sure most of the days to go out and ski when it wasn't like negative 40 degrees, which I do not miss at all, but it's that same culture, right? Like it's like you're in this place that lives around everyone skiing a hundred plus days a year, but the people right outside of town again are just ranching. Like they don't really care about like your ski days. They're there like skiing a couple of days a year in jeans and like a Carhartt jacket which is sweet. Like you just see the breadth of people who like where outdoor recreation has come from. And obviously it's like, you know, migrated to Gore-Tex and, and being rad and flips, but its roots are still there. And those people are just connected to the land. Um, yeah. So after I like was a ski bum for five years and, and faking the whole academic thing, I got, I started working with nature conservancy, um, just figuring out like what the deal was, you know, cattle on public lands, um, regenerative agriculture, um, how the whole system works. Like why are there cows on some trails and not on others? Why are cows allowed in wilderness? Like, you know, how does that culture tie into That's a great question. Cause I've always wondered that, like for instance, riding in Crested Butte, Colorado, you'll come ripping around the corner and, and you can't go forward. Like you got to go back whence the way you came cause they're not moving. <laughs> no uh, they're not moving along I bring my cattle dog along with me nowadays because he can like move them forward I was with Sarah Sturm recently and we brought her dog out for a ride in Durango and that dog just chased cattle for half an hour uh just moving them down the trail and we rode through literal cow shit for like 30 minutes uh just because her dog was just pushing these cattle down the trail and we just had to follow them it was a great start to a bikepacking trip when like you start out with everything kind of covered in gross stuff. Yeah. Mm, just oh, exactly how I wanted my bikepacking trip to go. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's weird, right? Like there's a weird intersection of like cultures. Like we're here with these like weird kids with sleeping bags and tents on our bike. And there's a guy in full camo on an ATV ranching cattle in the same place. And it's like, neither of us, are here for lesser reasons. We're just here for different cultures. Um, I've always found that really cool. So yeah, I think that's like, I've gone down this path of just connecting the academic background of earth science with that recreation. And, you know, we're in a time now where the places we all get outside are rapidly changing, um, whether it's, you know, our development and increasing, you know, homes and that interface, or if it's forest fires, or if it's floods, pandemics you name it um that all influences the way we can recreate outside and be with each other so yeah timeliness more just a personal curiosity so in regards to that i mean it's it's a pretty precarious balance right the ecosystem of outdoor recreation it, it's a very unique thing because the outdoor recreation individual is always looking for the newest gear the most modern, the lightest, right? There's that push to have the newest, greatest, fastest, whether it be a bicycle or a ski or a binding or the clothing or a new tent or... So we're just as much as we wanna save that world we're in, that we love, that, that adventure world we go to, we're also creating part of that problem. Like, are we recycling those things? Are we just buying to have the new? Or is what we have broken and needs to be replaced or you know there's these definite unique components to that that we don't really see the bigger picture of sometimes when like that old saying you can't see the forest through the trees right mm -hmm. um and that i think actually plays really well into this this 
bit here because wax on your skis definitely has an impact on the environment after the snow melts. Yeah, no, I mean, that's the water you drink, right? Those are the fish that I catch. Um, comes right back around. Uh, and it's, it's our own actions, like you're saying, those individual choices. But at the same time, it's like you're talking about not seeing, you know, the larger picture through a dense, constant need for gear and for being rad and for new company things. And there is that larger picture, you know, like, do, are we being sold like a false truth, right? Like, I, I love design. Like, I think that there's really cool art out there. And, but at the same time, like, I'm waiting for every bike to just come in black. So you don't know what the model year is. Like, there's no difference in your 2021 to 2020. Like, if they were both painted black, everyone would just shrug their shoulders and be like, I don't care. Well, but, that's why I ride a metal bike. Like, I chose, yeah. I purposefully chose, and, and you know this, I ride titanium, small frame builder, because I don't need to replace it. Yeah. Right? Like, but when I do need to replace it, I can give it back to the frame builder, and he can recycle that tubing. It's a oh. lot harder to do that. And gosh, this is actually a really dangerous conversation we're having for the boss <laughs> right now. <laughs> I'm up front. I, I taunt my sponsors all the time. They all know that like I'm the worst because I'm going to tell people to go buy like old gear and it's like, it's fine. Like yeah. you're always going to need a new drivetrain or, you know, like don't, don't go ruin yourself. But like, like you're saying though, I mean, you know, I'll be up front here. Like, you know, I, I ride for specialized. I ride for Rafa, for Wahoo, um, you know, fat tire. These are companies that that support my messaging, but I'm pretty blunt with them that like, I'm not here to sell things for them. Like I love made in America, made in USA, small frame builders. Like the reason they're down and like, I mean, aside from being one person in a shop, like they're not getting subsidies, right? Like they're not getting the tax loopholes of the giant guys. So their stuff's more expensive, right? And they're not shifting off the buck to Taiwan and that's good. Like you can afford it like do what you can according to your means like if you can afford it go buy from a small frame builder in the u.s you're going to get a sweet bike and it's going to be better for the environment right um it's funny like yeah it is those small things where i'm, I'm not afraid to to poke those buttons sometimes <laughs> there's always it's like e, 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 yep. and, yeah. then, and then like i'm going to get yelled out later i'm sure by somebody that no i think yeah. it's really all these little things we you know and you and i have talked about this a lot off air and like in our conversations like you know you did a great documentary about soil uh specialized uh worked with you on this and i think i think it's really important and, and for you folks out there who are, are watching and listening to this i will include that um a link to that through this uh podcast it's really important that you guys see this um and i want you to talk about how that came to be because i think it's a really really it's a super informative, but it doesn't beat you over the head. And I think that's what's really great about how you communicate the messaging. I don't feel like I'm getting hit in the face with a baseball bat and being told I'm a douchebag. Uh, you're informing people in a really great way to make them want to grab onto it, right? To, to be a part of it because they don't, they realize, oh yeah, I am affecting this and I can change things. And then they do the, it, like they hug it, they bring it in instead of being like, man, they made me feel like shit. Like, <laughs> yeah. that's have to get people to, to join the, you know, to get involved when they're made to feel bad. Totally. No, you, you're hitting the nail on the head and, and I appreciate the kind words, you know, it's, um, yeah, it, it's hard. And I've, I think I learned from my mistakes, like we all do, right? Um, I made those mistakes in the past. Like I was a boring scientist for a while being like, here's the facts, you know, feel bad about them. Um, I'm a scientist, you're a person, like I have the lab coat. And those are the mistakes, man. Like, you know, at the end of the day, I've realized you don't need a lab coat to see changes in the environment. Um, you just froze boss. Oh, can you, can you see me now? It. Yeah, just oh, started. Okay, cool. You know, you, the last thing you just said was you don't need a lab coat to see changes in the environment. Oh, perfect. That's where I left off. Yeah. Sure. So no, you know, I, I think that's the big thing is, is anyone can figure it all out. Um, and no one's an idiot, right? Like, and no matter what side of the aisle. differ on that last comment. There <laughs> yeah, sure. Okay. That's fine. We can beg to, yeah. And I, I actually probably agree with you on this, but 
you know, it, it's funny in that, like, treaties can all agree, you know, we all want good trails to ride. We all want clean air to breathe. We all want clean water and we all want to ski. Like, and that's, there's no difference between any of us there. Like if the if the word climate is what's like dividing us, I'm not even going to use it. Like, I don't care. I, there are bigger issues at hand, you know? And that's kind of the funny thing is like, especially mountain bikers, especially trail runners, like people that are outdoors all the time and skiers for that matter, like people get engaged. You know, people come to trail work days and they want to money for food banks. That's sick. Like, you know, and you might not be doing something with the word climate in it, but you're making the world a better place. And through that, you're probably impacting the climate. It kind of goes way back to when we talked about soil, like neither you or I buy good meat because we're like, yeah, we're climate activists. Like we do it because we care about fair wages, um, you know, healing the soil, keeping that culture alive, like, and people taste better meat, right? Like you're just making the world a better place, but also you just captured a shit ton of carbon in the soil. Like that, that's all you did, <laughs> like, but you're a climate activist, even if you don't want to be. Um, funny that that climate activist is such a touchy word, right? That that's not a word, words. It's, it's a very touchy subject. People get really revved up about it. And it's like, it's not, I mean, honestly, I think the term global warming should have never been used. It should have been climate change. That I think people would have been more adjusted to agreeing with, right? Because people are like, well, it's really cold here. So I don't see how it's global warming. We got totally. more snow this year than we did last year. There's no global warming. No, but all the snow came in one storm and you couldn't get out of your house for two weeks. Like, what that's is that thing? Right? It sucks. Like, that's, that's the thing is, it sucks for everybody, right? Like, no matter what, like, if your power is going out, like my internet was out this morning because I have a fat rainstorm sitting on top of us. And the last time we got rain in October was 2016, 17, and it all came as snow. Like, but here I am just like getting smashed by water, just making mud outdoors. And that's not a great start to ski season. Um, no, but it's, you know what? We're not going to complain about having water. No, no, not in California. I'll take all of this right now. Like we had 1.3 million acres burn on either side of my house this year. You know, like I live between the Dixie and the Calder fire and that this is putting those out finally. But, you know, that's the thing is, like that documentary and everything that I'm trying to do nowadays is really just showing people it's not about feeling bad about yourself, right? Like I think the easiest way to look at it is it's addition versus multiplication when it comes to climate. Um, as individuals, like I could reduce all my, I could recycle everything. I could live in like a small hut and burn like a few pieces of wood for warmth. And my annual, you know, uh, ex export of carbon would go from the average of 16 tons to going down to 12. Like, so what? That's like nine zeros past the decimal place of the U.S.'s annual emissions. Um, but hey, like if you and I vote on for a city council to do electric transport or not put in that, like not burn, you know, the, the pile of trash in the dump, that's a lot. If we all commuted, like if we did 1% more of all of our commuting as, as if like, as instead of cars right now. So instead of driving for those short trips, if we just replace 1% of those trips as a nation, that's 400 times what Specialized puts out in a year. That's crazy. So like- the Numbers are crazy, dude. It's just totally different. And it's not an individual thing. Like, sure, live your values, eh? Like, do that. I mean, it makes me think every day if I, if I care. Like, but that's more about, you know, pay, paying fair wages for food. It's not about trying to save the earth by, <laughs> like, bringing my own reusable mug to the coffee shop, you know? It's, that's so funny. It's like you think about, and that's little things. And it's, you know, I don't think people remember it's like you bring that reusable mug they give you a discount which is you know they're rewarding you for giving back but i think then the other thing is it's like it's just not another thing in the landfill like we keep and i don't know if people realize big picture right now i just saw 
um, some detailed articles about what's going to start going up. So uh, meat prices are going to go up 48%. To-go containers, aka folks, all those paper cups that you get at your uh, local coffee shop with your barista. A little fancy. <laughs> That's me with my pour over and a rocket espresso right now. So I'll 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 roll with that. I'll grow. Yeah, like I, you think about it, all those prices are going to go up. They said uh, paper cups and all to go containers are going to go up twenty four percent because I'm of going best right now. I know what to invest in. What I mean the stuff that's going to be more expensive. Yeah, you know. And then there's the whole other issue. Part of the reason the meat cost is going up is due to um, land water. Um, lack of ivermectin. I know that sounds crazy, but the ivermectin, as you know, let's, yeah, we'll tell you if you do not have your animals properly treated for worms or bugs, they can't go into the food system, right? Yeah. Part of the no, I mean, so there's all these little pieces yeah. that are going to change the, the fiscal and the availability dynamics. But then if we keep on putting and rushing to make more to put, like, it doesn't, it's not a big deal. I got a coffee mug, it's made of metal. Yeah. If I, if I break it, I break it. You got to get a jug and fill it with water and put it in your car. You don't need a plastic bottle. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's little things, you know, I don't think it's that hard. No. And it's, it's not. And that thing is like, as a, I think as a society, like we're really good at, at hiding what we burn, right? Like no one sees the gas power plant for the most part. No one sees man the dumps or like the burning of all the methane coming out when they just light old tires on fire in the middle of the desert. That shit scares me. I saw a video of that the other day. Yeah. Black smoke is just like, oh, dear Lord. Like, what? That's our reality. Like, that's what we do as a species. And we just hide it from everyone, right? Like, no one knows where all their old rubber goes because not all of us are, like, Googling videos of, like, tire burning, right? <laughs> if you want to see something that will blow your mind, go online and look at um, what, oh God, what was it that I saw? It's like tire fire or tire fire disposal, right? Or tire disposal fires. I think that's what it was. And you will, it'll give you a whole new meaning of like, oh my God, what is going on with tires? We just don't think about it. Like tires, cups, like Pacific gyre of plastic in the ocean. Like it is all hidden. And I think that's the crazy thing. Like you know, we all have these opportunities to buy things every day. Like we could be buying ski wax or a bike or, you know, a coffee mug and it comes from somewhere. And at the end of its life, it goes somewhere. Like things don't just disappear because the garbage man came. Um, and that's what we really have to reckon. It does with, disappear. Right? We just don't know. Where it's yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's not on my plate anymore. Right. And like, that's, what's wild is like this whole thing kicked off. Like you know, I'm a nerd about dirt and I still stick to a lot of the childhood where it's like, I love digging and building trails. Like sign me up. Like I love going to communities and working with them to, you know, design something new and cool or restore some old historic trail that hasn't been around since the eighties and creating these stupid long routes. Um, but that said, you know, like I got tired, like, all my trails burnt. Like I lost a ton of trail to forest fire and then I rebuilt it. And then I lost it again to forest fire. And I was kind of like, well, that was a few thousand hours of volunteer time. Um, you know, where did it all go? Like, I mean, and there's a lot of me's, let's just say, that are there in the woods hanging out with a chainsaw and like, some, you know, hand tools like a McLeod chipping away and trying to keep all those trails for everybody. But, you know, if you, if you like trails, like things like that matter, right? Like, you might be breathing smoke. Like I tried to go race up in Transcascadia this last last month, the end of last month. And two weeks before the race, half of our course burned. They were just like, we're pivoting. We'll figure it out. And I was like, all right, like cool, it's smoky. Like it, my lungs hurt. Oh, these trails are all old moto trails. We're fixing them like the day before. Um, it's just the reality of where we live. I'm sure if you traveled to go ride, you know, like I saw Rebecca's private Idaho People were racing in like 200 AQI. That hurts. That's not good. You it's get, not good for you. No, it's it's beyond. I mean, I think there's 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 big big picture things, and I think the the I, I want you to talk a little bit about the soil 
and how you were talking about the crossover and how you wanted to see the grazing process and how it gives back, because I think that's really interesting. And I think, um, you know, being able to take cattle and have them graze certain lands is restorative, but also is preventative of forest fires and was part of what, you know, Yeah, I think this is really, really interesting parts, whether it's sheep, goats, uh, beef, you know, you, you've got, and then you can integrate chickens and, and then there's just a whole slew of cool things that can happen. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think that's the honest thing to see is like, it took me a while to, even though I came from that culture to see the value, like why do they deserve to like let their cattle, you know, onto public lands or, or their sheep and it's going to mess up some trails or leave some, some cow shit on there, but whatever, like at the end of the day, like I love their culture. I I love getting like good, well-made local meat and like knowing that that came from someone who has lived on the land, understands the land. And that's kind of that reality to understand is like soil's a living thing. Um, to most of us, it's just a little ribbon of dirt that we ride or run on, which is all well and good. Like, but within all of that, you know, you look to the forest around you and you see this like a breathing organism, right? It, it captures carbon. Like the soil is probably one of the largest, because the ocean is heating up, the soil in forests actually is the largest carbon sink we have in the world. Um, so all those farms you go past, all those ranches, that's our hope right now. And that comes from cattle being on there and you know eating cover crops and anything else and putting it back, passing it through their system and putting it right back in the soil and it's become, um we need that right like what else is conservation i guess is this funny funny word because no one can define it like i asked 10 people what conservation means and all of them shrug their shoulders and they're like eh, you know keeping things the way they are for the future generations or like nature's a resource great but like if it's so open-ended clearly there are a lot of ways to do it and for me, you know, I, I see these large, you know, shrublands and sage sagebrush lands, chaparral all throughout California, through Nevada. And everyone's like, oh yeah, why don't you put a, a mountain bike trail there? I could, but also like, I know that ranchers use that as public land and that land's pretty all right without us on it, right? Like we're all reaping those benefits. Um, and when the cattle are like going through, they're eating the underbrush, that stuff that's not gonna burn, right? That stuff that's not gonna, like if a fire rips through and there's a whole set of canopy, the fire's just gonna climb that ladder and get to the trees. But if cattle are there, you don't have that middle step in that canopy. So the fire just burns along the base of the trees. Trees are usually fine. Like they're, they're not gonna get bothered by a regular fire coming through. There's something that I read, um, actually, excuse me, I didn't read that uh, my wife talked to me about um, and it was about how the native tribes used to have these type of controls, whether it be through animal animals or through small burning to prevent exactly what you're talking about. It was the native way of preventing the fire from, you know, from rising and igniting the top of the trees. So Spot on. Yeah. It's so cool. You actually live in like the original place for that. Like, up north around Sonoma. I went to a course actually pretty recently where like people from the indigenous tribes and from offshoots of the Miwok showed us their their fire practices. And they had drip torches where they literally would just light pine sap covered bows on and they would just like walk around to their grass fields and they would light pine cones on fire and just huck them. And they would just light exactly what they're aiming for. Like basically they've been doing modern day firefighting practices but better for a very long time. <laughs> But it's interesting because there was a point in which that was stopped and they were told they weren't allowed to do that anymore by the National Forest Service because they didn't understand the practices and they thought that they were actually igniting the forest fires. Dude, this is like the root of our issue in Western United States right now. Like that's the issue with, you know, Gifford Pinchot is a cool guy, you know, the first cat, first head of the forest service. Um, but he's kind of the inspiration for Smokey the Bear. And yeah, I mean, early, like Santa Barbara is a great example. Um, back in the 1800s, if they caught a Chumash lighting a fire, the penalty was death. Like you were 
put to the rope if you were caught doing your indigenous practices. And then they decided to start like taking out every single fire. Like if the fire started, they were gonna put it out. And now, like, I think in our forest, we have three of the top 10 largest like fires in the last 20 years of history because we've just let everything grow and locked it all up. There's no ranching, there's no indigenous fire practices and it just burns through and it torches everything from like the lowest shrub to the tallest Douglas pine at 10,000 feet. Well, I think that's interesting because now um, they're going back to those methods and they're learning those methods again. Yeah. And it's real, there's, there's that realization of doing controlled burns and pre-burns and, you know, making sure, but it's taken a time of that not happening to see this mass destruction. And yes, we go through cycles of growth and death and rebirth, but not on the scale that we've seen. Yeah, no, entirely. And I think that's scary to show people that it's incredibly scary. I mean, you'll, you'll appreciate this. Like, you know, Christopher, like Christopher Blevins and now the kids like world cup superstar. And uh, <laughs> like, you know, he's, he's great. Like, but I met, and you know, a world champ, sorry. He has a rainbow Jersey now, but I met Christopher when he was an undergraduate at Cal Poly, like living, you know, an hour away in Santa Barbara from Santa Barbara. And um, he was like, yeah, I'm going to come do this FKT. And I kind of shrugged my shoulders and I was like, that's cool, but that trail it ends on actually just burned. So no, you're not like, unless you're going to walk down it. Um, and he was like, okay, well, what do we do? And I was like, well, you drive down here with your bike and I'll carry the tools and you come help me work on it. And so I've got this, like this tall XC World Cup athlete who's probably supposed to be doing intervals somewhere far away from me in Europe. And I'm like, yep, here's a tool, like explaining to him, you know, like what a McLeod is. And, you know, this is what we have to do to get these trails back that you train on to win, you know, World Cups at like an international level to go to the Olympics. And I had him out there in the rain, just like suffering along next to me, chipping in bench cut uh, and looking at the whole thing. And once the trail was rebuilt, then I was like, yeah, you know, like you could do your FKT but also I'm not going to give you car access. Like I'm not going to open the gate to let you go see it via vehicle. So we're going to go do like a really slow riding day where like we did the whole route, but like had lunch at some Chumash cave paintings, like went to these old abandoned ranching cabins. We saw ranchers out there, went to like the old civilian conservation corps camps and these eyes just opened, right? Like it's a lot more than just like going fast on a bike. There's a lot that's behind it um but yeah like you know i think that's the funny thing it's like as a sport right now we're like how fast did you go on strava not like you know what did you put back in or like what did you see and i think we're starting to see that i think the the you know the other day it, it, it dawned on me right i'm never gonna be the guy i was <laughs> years ago right i'm never gonna be that fast i'm you know I'm pushing 50, but I still love to push myself, right? And I realized it's not about, it took a while for me to get this into my brain. And I think when we were all up at Downeyville, that, that race, I wasn't, it, like that climb was brutal. Let's just be honest. And it was 112. So it was a little too much for my, my level popped and I was done. But the fun, the views, the smell in the air that you can smell and folks are probably like, what the hell does it smell like sweat? No, it's, it's, there's that really, really unique smell of pine and really crispy sage and you could smell it out there, right? It's very different. And then when you start to descend, then you start to get some moisture and some tree cover and then things change again and there's visuals everywhere. And I think that as fast as I wanted to go, I think the funnest part for me was the, was the adventure. It's like, I'm, cause that was the first time I'd ever done it. Really? I did not know that. Okay. I've never done, I've never done Downeyville before. Whoa. So you got the full experience in like one go going really hard during a hot day. One That's... go on a hardtail, really hard yeah. and, and like loving it because it was an experience. And I think that's what we've, forgotten in a lot of ways because when we first got our bike right as a kid it was the first first way for you to get the farthest away first time you could get the farthest away from your parents you could right 
And it was about seeing new things. Yeah, 100%. Just esca- escaping. Like, I mean, I didn't have video games. I didn't have... Yeah, you didn't. I mean, we didn't have Strava and, like, video games to play. So it was hop on your, like, you know, hard... Not even hardtail. Hop on your fully rigid, like, maybe well-welded steel bike and just go, you know, like, down some dirt road. Maybe you found a trail, but there was no way to find those trails unless you talked to people. And um, riding with friends in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Like, that, that is sense of adventure. And I think this is so cool to hear about... Levin's having that like, uh, like the, the like the deer in the headlights moment. Like, that's exciting to be able to see those cave paintings and like to see those things. That's that's an experience. Like, that's what it's all about. And I think the way that you have continued to get people to look at the environment that they're in in a bigger picture is making everybody say, "Hey, we have to keep these things here, not just for the fact that we want to go from point A to point B." to get an FKT. And for those of you who don't know what an FKT is, I'm sure there are folks, an FKT can mean one of two things, fastest known time or funnest known time. And I think Dylan and I are on the funnest known time level. Oh (laughs) yeah. We're on that one. But fastest known time basically meaning they may want to do the Cocopelli trail from one point to the next in the fastest known time. And it has to be unsupported and you suffer, right? So if you have a mechanical and you're stuck out there on your own, you're stuck out there and you got to do it. If you run out of water, well, then you're, you know, buzzards are stare, stare at your bike computer and just measure watts for like six hours. <laughs> I mean, I can barely fun. look at my computer for like 10 minutes. I like the lack, I was just riding in Colorado and me and Sarah stopped like halfway through a day underneath some really pretty like fall color aspens. And I pulled out a loaf of bread and some brie cheese and mussels. And I was like, yeah, I've got my like little open nail knife. Like I'm, I'm ready to bike. And she was like, what are you doing? Like, why is this what you've brought? And I was like, I'm not in a hurry. Like I'm, I'm here to hang out and look around. <laughs> like, you know, so. You just said something that I haven't seen in a long time. And I think I, I, I like that. The leaves changing, the aspen leaves changing is fucking beautiful. For those who have never seen it, it is magical. It is beyond magical. Like it's, especially in Colorado because it's a sea of them for as far as the eye can see. Like it's just, it's it's like a postcard, right? It's like almost like a cartoon. It's insane. Like the yellows and reds. Like the Fantasia. Honestly, yeah. And I, I like, I've gone and I lived in Montana for six years and I like would see this and I left, come back to California and I just forget like, like the whole fall the whole month of September October I mean I went up to Washington and the larch trees that are up in the northern cascades just this insane phosphorescent yellow that you just don't see anywhere else and like I just forget those colors exist um amazing we don't live in a place with a lot of seasons these days like (laughs) there's like one aspen somewhere out in the forest near me here in Tahoe but I'd probably have to go find it to like see what color it is this day of the week um, if there's any leaves left from all that rain probably not and that's the thing is like it's important like I don't want to discourage people from traveling right like go to races go to places and get a baseline like people only know change based on like what else they see right and I think that's what's so key to like my work but also experience like if the weather's gradually changing bit by bit you kind of just get used to it like a frog in a pot right like it's getting warmer but pretty slowly um that's a very french mother reference i don't know if a lot of people can get that that not cooking reference but or like lobster maybe in the u.s i don't know i guess you uh, i think everybody will okay you know what i'm saying but that's the thing is like i want people especially people who don't have access to nature right that's what frustrates me sometimes is like i don't want to just show you videos of like these sweet places that i get to go race like my bike downhill or or check out like I want that to like be part of a thing where I also work to get you access. Like you should, no matter your means, like you should be able to go out and go to a park by your house, see fall, like see birds and, you know, no change when you see it. Um, I think that's the cool thing is like the world is where I go and ride my bike and ski right now, but I'm kind of most jealous of those people who's like outdoor world is a postage stamp and they just know every single thread in that postage stamp. Cause I, I don't get to do that very often. Like, so yeah, you know, fall colors. 
they're good. They're a reminder. So you were just at a really important um, uh, meeting for POW, Protect Our Winters, um, which I think is a really, really um, pretty incredible organization that has been, I think, making some pretty big leaps and bounds and has yeah. some really great folks uh, working on it. Um, Jeremy Jones was or is the, the founder. Uh, yeah. one of them. And um, why don't you talk a little bit about POW and how you're working with them and, and what what the big goal is. I mean, you know, protect our winners is more than just protecting the winner. It's protecting us always. Because the, whole, the whole part of the summer. Yeah, well, I mean, thankfully, a lot of the skiers and snowboarders are picking up bikes and, and getting into the whole thing. So they see the bigger picture. Um, yeah, I mean, talk about being awestruck, right? Like you show up to this little campground in Buena Vista, Colorado, like middle of nowhere. And like you're setting up camp and there's Jeremy Jones, like there's Caroline Gleick, like one of the preeminent female ski mountaineers. There's Rob Crar. He runs like hundreds of miles at a time. And I'm like, yeah, I ride mountain bikes. Like, <laughs> you know, and they're like, damn, really? Like, that's insane. And it just like levels this playing ground where you're like, all right, cool. Like, let me just see what I can learn here. Um, and yeah, I mean, it was, it was bringing people together underneath the Protect Our Winters banner to share a lot of personal stories to see, you know, how do different people get affected? Because sure, skiers, right? Snowboarders, you have less snowpack. That sucks. Like, that's not only our passion, but that's our vocation. Like, we need that to work. And at a larger level, that's how you make political change, like systemic change. Like, and POW takes many of us to Washington, to our local legislators, to state levels, and they let us tell our stories to these people who sit in an office all day and just talk to other elected officials in suits and ties to understand that their constituents like need the climate to be under control. They need snow, they need less fires, they need clean air, they need clean water in order to make a living and in order to live a good life, right? Um, and so Protect Our Winters, you know, brought in lobbyists to talk us about, you know, how do you as athletes, how do you as people with followings give this information, disseminate it out over social media or over video projects to make sure everyone feels empowered to send an email to your local, you know, representative or to your federal senator telling them like, what do you care about and why? And like, if they don't listen, you're going to vote them out and they're going to lose their job. And that's the last thing they want, right? Like they're there for a paycheck. Um, so yeah, Protector Winters, it was not only, you know, a meeting to start bringing mountain bikers and cyclists into the fold to talk about climate, but at the same time, it also, they brought hired consultants to talk about, um, you know, representation and diversity and, you know, a, an equity in voices and equity in access. And that was honestly, like, I learned a lot about just like sharing space and uplifting others and you know a variety of voices and where I can shut up and learn and where I can provide something that you know maybe is useful to the world um that was a lot you know like and that protect our winters is that opportunity I think for for a lot of us no matter what we do outdoors to to make a difference you know to make those multiplication level changes that we're talking about there rather than just recycling every now and then but you know, getting more bike paths, cutting down on fossil fuel use, um, you know, going toward electric vehicles and an electrical grid, um, you know, civilian conservation core, all these things are like right there. They're, they're being voted on right now. And we just don't get that information a lot. We're kind of cut off as a sport. And so hopefully from this meeting, like what I hope to do, what a few other cyclists hope to do, I'll cut this window off in a second here too. Um, but you know, we, we hope to bring That's that empowerment. Down on you, thank yeah. you. Signing this the is like finally some sun after after a lot of not sun for the past like many days, you know. Oh gosh. Um, but oh. yeah, you know, it's, it's funny. Um, that's the reality is that people don't feel empowered in the bike industry. Like people feel very cut off on that whole whole side of things, you know, and you shouldn't. Um, you should realize that every single voice matters and that you're the one who holds the keys to someone's job, who makes all those decisions at the high level and they have to listen to you. 
Well, I think there's, there's a lot of things that are really interesting. You know, it's like the cycling industry definitely, or cycling, as you know, definitely has the feel of an elitism sport. And so does, mm. so does winter sports due to access. And those things are changing and they're changing quickly, which is a really amazing and lovely change. I agree. Um, but I think one of the things that has been for a lot of folks, a little bit difficult to understand about POW is they automatically, you hear protect our winters. And then it, it comes off to some folks as a situation where it's like, oh, there's a bunch of rich skiers that are just trying to save, you know, their ski weekends. And I don't think that the, that the bigger picture and the bigger implications are, are, are being viewed. And the way I see it, and which is why I'm, you know, trying to have some conversations with Pow at this point is because without snowpack, we definitely have long-term repercussions, right? You have faster soil erosion in the mountains, right? Yeah. We have less water in the valleys, which are feeding our cattle and also doing irrigation, which then produces food. So we have this trickle down effects and it's also our drinking water. So we have all these trickle down effects that people aren't recognizing. So protect our winters isn't just about having snow sports. It's about having bigger long-term availability and access to the basic needs of life. Just utilizing skiing, or winter sports or sledding. I mean, it's it's all of the above, right? Everyone. Let's just be honest. Yeah. It's all oh. of the above. Like, there's not gonna be ice skating to go out with your kids if it's too warm, right? We're not gonna have sledding or snowball fights. Those are not elitist. Those are accessible to every, you know, it's like we have to start thinking bigger, bigger picture. And I think that's why having cyclists and athletes that are in the bigger picture of the world giving back. And, you know, the 1% is a huge deal. You see that now purchasing from places that give 1% back to the environment, really, really important. And I think we definitely as a whole have the ability to make these changes, but very simply. Man, you're spot on that, that, that description of power right there, like you're hired. Um, I'll, I'll email Jake right now and just let him know, like, Hey, we're bringing Chris on, <laughs> like, you know, but that's the thing is like, you talk to a wide variety of people and that's what we all like that's what's hard right like and you're right it is it's everyone it is I don't care if you're in hiking boots I don't care if you're on a snowmobile or if you just like going on a walk in the park with your dog I think it's How about the guy who's going to want to use his jet ski in the summer in the lake because I mean that'd be great but if it's a drought like good luck getting from the dock to the water right like the lake's going away because we don't have the snowpack to fill the lake so you can't put your boat in the lake and that's where like pow really comes in, right? Like if you think about it, we all feel very individual with like, you know, we're getting impacted on the, whatever we like to do, whether it's good food or, you know, recreation or just being outside. But if you look at people who identify as outdoor recreationalists in, in the US, that's 50 million individuals, like just outdoor recreation. And it's more if you start bringing in other types of cycling and it's more if you bring in the hikers. 50 million people is enough to essentially win a presidential election if all those people voted, if everyone knew what they were doing. Those people already identify. Where are you on election day? Like if you sign up for POW's emails, you know, all you're doing is getting empowered to make a better world. It's not about voting for climate change. It's about voting for fair pay for firefighters, right? Like they should be making way more than $14 an hour. That's, messed that's up. horrifying. That's, that's less than minimum wage. That's horrifying. But my Senator here, McClintock has on quote said that's not skilled labor and they do not deserve more than 14, 15 an hour. So why does and he, like, he sits on the desk? Why doesn't he go out and try to put out? Exactly. How are you reelected as a dude? Like your home, like his home was literally saved during the Calder fire. Like he owes those people the entire value of his home. And these people, like, I mean, that's what people are missing is like, I don't vote based on D's and R's. Like, you know, I might be fairly liberal, but I also grew up like understanding bow hunting and fly fishing, right? Like, I understand that culture and way of life. Like if someone is going to be a Republican, but is going to do better for their community, great. But if that Republican's screwing all the hardworking people that are, you know, putting out the time and fighting fires, like, get that person out of here. He's also a climate denier. He also denies race theory. Like, we've got a whole long list of that guy. You know, like, yeah, it sounds, like a, sounds like top notch. 
dude, I have a great time when like I and I, I work with POW and an outdoor alliance as well, which is another like, you know, organization that gets people involved. And they'll put me in meetings with these people. Like I will have one-on-one meetings with people who spend most of their time in Washington, DC. And sometimes it sucks, like, you know, and I have to play like to their their script where it's like climate change is real. And I'm over here like, well, it is, but I'm not gonna talk about that. I'm gonna talk about, you know, like the people, how much the outdoor industry brings in economic gain to your region, right? And if they all pull out, sick, like that's, all your people lost that's their jobs. perfect example, right? When you think about the economic gain or the economic impact to a community, let's just use Truckee as an example. That's where you live, right? Yep. You have your shoulder seasons, but then you have your big seasons, right? Winter, summer. Yep. If there's fires, there's no guests in the hotel rooms or or going out to eat or renting bicycles or hiking or going to the grocery store in the su- and, and then vice versa in the winter if there's no snow same problem it's, it sucks like the grocery store that i've been going to for i don't know how long is open less days a week now because during the fires like with smoke there was no clientele it wasn't enough to literally pay people 15 dollars an hour to stock shelves like there are no employees, no one, no one's getting work. Um, and that's the reality, but like the outdoor industry is an $887 billion a year behemoth in the United States. Like that's not pennies. That's as much as like oil and gas. Like they are bringing in insane amounts of jobs and, you know, like people going into shops and ancillary things like people go places and buy food and rent hotels in those places because they have the outdoor gear to go to those places with trails and rivers and ski resorts. And that is like, that is a huge industry in our, in our country that people just ignore. I mean, it's, it's wild that our entire sports and our entire, like, what would life be to you? You know, I mean, you have a family, so I'm going to, I'm going to ask someone who doesn't maybe, cause I was going to say, what would life no, be without skiing and cycling? Right. Like, what do you show your kids? Right. Like, what do you show your family? That's, my son has asked me multiple times, have we started planning to go skiing this winter? Yeah. It's, I saw that it snowed, yeah. you know? And, and I think that that's a really, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that I grew up with as a child learning to ski. And, and it's been very exciting for me to share that with my son. And I think that outdoor, that feeling, that crisp air, that smell, I can always remember the smell when it's gonna snow, right? You know it in the air, you get oh. out, you smell it and you go, it's going to snow tonight. And everybody's like, nah, nah. The next morning you wake up and you got it. And you're like, yes. Dusting. Yeah, that's dude. It's, like, that's the way of life. Powerful, right? And yeah. I think we we take, and it's there's definitely a component of it if we look at it from the bigger picture. So when you think of outdoor enthusiasts, that may not be a cyclist or a winter sport person. That could be a fisherman, a fly fisherman, a hiker, just somebody who's a bird watcher. That's an outdoor enthusiast. That's, they're all gonna be affected by these changes. And you don't think those birds nests are gonna go away if there's a fire? No, I mean, the people who eat outdoors at restaurants, you know, like they're outdoor enthusiasts. Like if it's smoky out, nobody wants to sit sitting out on the deck. Like, no, like it, and if it's smoky out, like, and you're, you know, barbecuing outdoors, you're not getting the same, I'm gonna same thing at all <laughs> about it. I, Clean. Oh, better. Now we're, now we're better. Yeah, there we right. go. Allergies yeah. are crushing me today. See, but that's the thing, right? Like different times of years. You're getting oh, it. Like, that's too. That's all part of it. That's all part of it, though. Like, I mean, you have different times for pollen in the air, for allergies, for smoke. Like, you know, my, my mom has asthma and that's like become a game changer as far as like living up in tahoe oh my um yeah what do you do when your aqi is like a thousand you know and you're like well even in inside we have these like industrial air filters where it's like is this we live in like a hepa filtered lab now where it's just running all the time it's wild but no i get it like you know allergies getting some rain it's kicking things back up yeah the world we live in is rapidly changing no matter what you like to do. And it's, it's key that, you know, all of that outdoor recreation or whatever we do is tied to just 
observing, right? Like that's all I can ask people to ever do is, you know, take the places that matter to you, right? Like where do you have family memories of hikes? Like where have you seen birds or seen changes? The little nuances and patterns of like the city park or your favorite trail. Um, that's like what drives people to care about about places far away, right? Like no place is inherently special. Like we see, you know, Chris Picard's photographs or like something really pretty and you're like, wow, like I love Iceland. But if someone was like, here's a petition to save Iceland, I'm like, do I have five minutes? Like, I don't know. But that's the thing is like, if I think, you know, how is Iceland related to the places I love, then I maybe do have that five minutes. You know, I think that's what's wild. Like, like Iceland, I talked to Chris Picard a while ago about this actually. And he's been going there more than anyone, right? Like so much. He's ridden his bike across every inch of that, that country. We gotta but, go. We gotta get him and we gotta go with him. Oh, we're, we're going that way. We're going that way. I have plans. We're, we're doing things now. But the crazy <laughs> thing is, is like Iceland, sea level is dropping there because as the glaciers melt, um, there's something called isostatic rebound. And the rock basically is like weighted down in the, the core of the, or like in the, in the mantle of the earth. And when the, the weight of the glacier comes off, the ground actually rises. And so you have all these fishing ports that are like way off of where the ocean is. And they can't even get the fishing boats into their processing plants anymore because sea level has dropped instead of risen in Iceland. And he was like, shit, like <laughs> this whole time. And I'm like, yeah, it's like, you know, you do all these crazy things, but it's these yes. little things that we all miss. How do you... Yeah, see, but that's completely polar opposite to what a lot of people would think or hear yeah. is going to happen. Ocean levels are going to rise. They will rise in some areas that are, you know. Down. But yeah, it's the world. It's, it's about just observing, taking notice, and, and I think caring about, you know, other people and caring about, like, yeah, ourselves, you know, like the things we do for passion or for work. And if those things are impacted by, you know, extreme weather events or drought or all these other things, then yeah, we've got a stake in this. Like it's, it's going to go on without us, but it's not like we're tied to the tracks, you know, like all bundled up here waiting on the train. Like we are the conductor with our hand on the emergency brake, just like wide eyed looking out the window being like, mm, like, do we pull this? I don't know. <laughs> like that's, what's crazy. Right. And that's every time you go outdoors, like I think about this all the time where do I want to like, I come back from a ride and you do the same, like maybe crack a beer, maybe go get a coffee, like do something with friends. And that's five bucks, right? Like whatever, that's worth it. It ends my day in a nice way. But that five bucks, I'm like, yeah, like every time I go outdoors, I should be giving five bucks to, you know, that local indigenous conservation group or that trail stewardship group or, you know, giving my 1% back to the planet. Um, I didn't buy anything, but I use the land and it's kind of all our responsibility to give back there, huh? So yeah, that is, that's true. I bothered Mark Ganey about this, the guy who invented Strava. And I don't think I've sold him yet on the idea of like having people put in their PayPal and like give back based on where they ride. But I'm still going to bother him. I think it's a good that's idea. A great idea. I think it could be really fun and really smart. It's it's a cool platform, but I, I love that people are still competitive. Turn it into a betting thing. Turn it into where people say, "Well, if I beat this person's, Ooh. turn it into a betting thing." I would. Is that legal in the United States? I don't know. <laughs> Basically, somebody says, "Like, what if I said?" We'll talk about this offline. Okay, <laughs> I love it. But you get it. Like, you you get the whole process, and it's from like everything from food. It's your life. Like, you are an embodiment of this whole thing. Like you understand the intricacies of food and flavor down to how a cow is raised, like where it is raised or a pig, like what it grew up in all the way up to like, you go places to ride bikes and teleski and do these crazy things. You know, you've seen the whole spectrum and you meet every single person in the spectrum. And if anyone is good at like convincing people to tie like life passions and doing some good in the world together, like, I don't know. Thanks for that. It's one day at a time. I think, I think I'm, I'm working towards it. I'm doing the best I can. Um, try to give people a larger voice to, to share it and, and get people to pay attention. So, well, let's That's all you can do. We've, I, I've, I've monopolized quite a bit of your time tonight, but uh, we're going to do our end of the show game, which we do all the time. Okay. Beautiful. 
there's no wrong answers. Um, and it's just super straightforward and fun. All right. Love it. All Love right. It. Red or white wine? Red. Okay. Hamburger hot dog. Uh, I'd probably pick hamburger. Ketchup or mustard? Mustard every time. Like with passion. Whole grain or Dijon? Oh man, that's um we'll go with whole grain. Okay. Nigiri, sashimi. Uh what am I having to drink with it? Uh we'll go sashimi. Dark beer, light beer. Light beer. I am a lightweight at this point. <laughs> Dude, the endurance racing, all the gravel has not been good for your beer intake. Like, no. <laughs> okay. Chocolate, fruit. You know, I'm a big fan of combining them for dessert, like some orange with a chocolate, but I'd probably pick chocolate most nights if it's dark. And that was the next question, darker milk, and you already answered it. It's, that's completely against my roots being like Colombian and Swiss. I should be picking like milk chocolate, but here we are. Like, I, I don't care for that at all. Like give me the dark chocolate, like 78% plus anything less. You can keep it like it's fine. Uh, noodles or pasta? Pasta. Dumplings or ravioli? That's hard. Um, man. I've gotten really into momos recently, which are technically a kind of dumpling. So we'll go with dumpling. Burrito or taco? Burrito. I've never eaten a taco successfully without half of it coming out the back. <laughs> like, I'm just going to admit my mistakes right now, you know, <laughs> like for all to see. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I have never, I've never heard that one before. Okay. What is your go-to on the bike to eat? for normal food mm. and it's always normal food nowadays i'm gonna i'm gonna be honest like you know you 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 get to a point where you don't just want like another yeah I know. An another brick you get it um man what is my go-to right now i've started making like egg sweet potato burritos and pretty much every race has started with one of those at like minute 45 um they just have like a good mix of what i want but yeah Okay. On your bike, on you, when you're out um, backcountry skiing, what's your go-to? Mm. And for those of you folks who don't realize, 75% of what you carry out there backcountry freezes. So it's not always that easy. <laughs> not easy at all. Like that's the thing is like, wow, do I want to eat like rock hard mango or like some pretty milk, like lukewarm soup? Um, <laughs> man, like skiing's the hard one, right? Um I chipped my tooth on an apple once that I brought with me backcountry skiing. Because it froze. Because right? it froze. That was terrible. Um, so, like, for folks out there who have no idea, like, you put a Snickers bar in your bag, forget it. You're going to break all of your teeth. Like, oh, you're hopeless. You're hopeless. Huh. Like, this stuff doesn't, there's tricks, which oh. that's why we have inside pockets and we put those things to stay warm on the inside. But inevitably, you always screw up. You put your food in the back. Okay. Always like that's the thing is I can't even say like almond butter sandwich because the almond butter gets like hard and frozen and you're like cool <laughs> like I've just learned to get really good at eating beforehand pretty much or like bringing soup in a in like a little like container slash like basically a coffee mug that has a screw on top like I'm really about the soup game I grew up as one of those little ski groms that were like this is so embarrassing. I can't believe I'm putting this on here. Um, I would go to the cafeteria, the ski resort, and like I got an allowance. My parents weren't like doting on me, right? This is when skiing cost like 25 bucks for a lift ticket. And I would those make it. Like, those days are gone. Like it is 10 times that now. But I would get a, I would bring a bowl and I would fill it with hot water from the coffee machine. And then I would put ketchup packets in there and stir it around and then get all the free crackers that are like at the counter and just like dip crackers in like ketchup soup with salt and pepper i'm so glad like my parents definitely probably gave me enough money for food but i was like no i'm keeping that for whatever children do with money these days i don't know but like oh, that's priceless so i'm still on like the tomato soup kick where like i'll bring that or like some squash soup with me it brings back really warm, fuzzy memories of how far I've come from like ketchup water and crackers to <laughs> being able to sort of cook, right? <laughs> oh my God. I knew a person who used to go 
to a cafeteria and make condiment sandwiches because they used to have like lettuce pickles <laughs> and they would yep. a sandwich they would put everything inside <laughs> you gotta do what you gotta do to make it through i mean yeah you know you look when you're a professional skier or like a professional ski guide man like i've sat in cafeterias after doing avalanche testing at ski resorts and families will walk up and be like do you want the rest of our fries like we're not going to eat them and i'm like how haggard do i look right now like <laughs> you're like i'm not a homeless person sitting in a ski resort cafeteria but like here people are like offering this guy with long hair their fries it's great like that's that's my life in skiing right now it's yeah need to pull a more professional look probably the tele skis are what's giving off the air of like maybe that guy doesn't doesn't have a lot of money he's pretty free he afford the back of his bindings that's usually what <laughs> yeah no they're they're feeling my rough life so it's back end on ski food you know life goes <laughs> what's your and the last one is what's your like guilty pleasure that you like Man, um, I don't have too many vices, you know, like my guilty pleasures, honestly, are like spoiling my dog and coffee. Like, I don't want to be a snob about coffee, but am I over here with like a fancy little kettle and like a pour over in the morning, like hand grinding my beans? Uh, yeah, for sure. You know, like I like going to different coffee shops and, and buying all that. And that's my vice is like a very expensive espresso coffee bar going on in the kitchen. but. I got one. There could be worse ones. I, I mean, trust me, there's definitely worse vices in the world than coffee. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, hopefully people gave like more exciting answers. The, but yeah, you know, like you gotta you gotta have something you dork out on, something that brings you a little bit of happiness every day. So Dylan, if people want to follow you, um, why don't you shout out your Instagram? And for those of you at the end of this, there'll be a link to his Instagram as well as to how and the videos that um he's been putting out oh man you get some real great understanding of what's been going on yeah no i appreciate it um i'm on instagram yeah at my name dylan.osleger um and then my website is actually my nonprofit website so sagetrail.org um and yeah you know i'll have two more films coming out in that same vein one with christopher blevins and specialized and wahoo and then the other one with sarah sturm dorking out on pine beetles and dead forests, bike packing and, and forest fire. So there'll be some good stuff coming up. A little bit of content. Awesome. Well, thank you for taking time. I really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Uh, folks, make sure you check out everything that Dylan's up to and uh, keep an eye out for the next one.